the Scholars in Iron podcast. There are several other reasons that make lifting an incredibly effective preventive activity. I could list a few, like for example, the squat rack or the platform are symbolic borders, symbolic boundaries between the individual's intimate or personal space and the rest of the world. And usually suicidal individuals have been subjected to a lot of invasion of their boundaries. Lifting can help them in a very simple way to take the first steps to restore their boundaries and engage in goal-oriented tasks. Good morning and welcome to the Scholars in Iron podcast. I'm your host, Joe, coming to you from outside the nation's capital, right here in the DMV. The objective of Scholars in Iron is very straightforward. It's to associate strength training with intellectual endeavors. On the show, we'll examine the connection between capitalism and CrossFit, philosophy and powerlifting, all to raise some hell and even a few questions. By the end of each episode, we'll get one rep closer to living the phrase, civilize the mind, but make savage the body. Now come on, let's lift. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States today. In 2018, suicide attempts were estimated to number around 1.5 million cases alone. Dr. Marilia Coutinho is a member of the Ronin Institute. She's a Brazilian academic trained in both the natural and social sciences, and she's also a lead powerlifter. Scholars and Iron had Dr. Coutinho on the show in January, and we're pleased to have her back on again because she'll be releasing a book on suicide and its relationship to lifting, entitled Lifting and Suicide, How Lifting and Strength Sports Help the Hopeless, published by the Ronin Institute. The topic itself is sensitive and strikes close to home to Dr. Coutinho as a suicide attempt survivor herself, but also for the show, as Mike, one of our original members, is active with veterans struggling with suicide and societal alienation. We discussed Dr. Coutinho's motivations for writing the book, whether or not suicide as a social phenomenon is more than just a mental health issue, and how lifting can play a preventative role. But the culture may have some pitfalls for those who are prone to it. So let's get into it. Morelia, the last time you were on the show, you spoke of your work through the World Health Organization and even your own personal struggle with suicide. So could you tell us a little bit more about your current work through the book and why you decided to write this now? Well, I have worked for the... World Health Organization before, actually several times. I've been a fellow, I've been a consultant, uh, I've managed Pan American and World Health Organization grants. And um, those of us who have progressed in their careers in close proximity with the World Health Organization, we developed a relationship with the institution. Um, We're all aware that as any large intergovernment organization has its flaws, but it's still the chief leader and innovator in health and public health in the world. And I have my loyalties. So the World Health Organization covers all the realms of public health, but 
It also has major programs that are approved from five to ten years, and uh, they're multi-country initiatives. It takes years to even set the program up. And the World Health Organization has approved a, a mental health plan in 2013, and 2020 is its last year. So we're going to be following the results of seven years of World Health Organization mental health program and as a former fellow and um, permanent uh, asset for the World Health Organization, this is my contribution. The book will be free for download and it's meant to be part of the WHO efforts. That's the main reason I wrote the book. This is the last year and it's a year for us to take inventory of everything that was done, what can be improved, what deserves a different outlook. Concerning suicide, World Health Organization a program is about suicide prevention. Is there or is there not a suicide epidemic? So what, one of the things I try to clarify in the book is what suicide is and how suicide manifests as a social phenomenon and as a health, as a public health phenomenon. So what does epidemiology of suicide look like? Right now when we're immersed in a major pandemic caused by the COVID virus, it's a pretty interesting comparison to make. So COVID is caused by a virus. It's a transmissible disease. So the, all the indicators for a transmissible disease are based on the assumption that we are observing the result of a pathogen-host interaction. In this case, humans are the host and the pathogen is the virus. Non-transmissible diseases have a completely different behavior. So the curves are different. It's not transmissible. Even when we use terms like suicide contagion, we mean something different than what we mean when we talk about bacterial or viral contagion. So suicide is one of the things we call a stable trend in society. Rarely, very rarely, we see a sudden spike in numbers of suicides. And even when we see a sudden spike, it doesn't even look, it's not even close to what a spike in transmissible disease epidemiology is. So even small differences in incidence in non-transmissible diseases or mortality or morbidity causes like suicide are significant. So suppose we have a situation where suicide oscillates around 13 per 100,000, or we can also talk about the number of actual suicides in a society. And we see a 5% increase. A 5% increase in suicide rates in any given society is something significant. So it's a public health concern to observe variations in suicide rates. So what is usually uh, meant by uh, suicide epidemic is that in certain social segments, which we define by variables such as age, 
region, cultural background, sex, you know, define a certain social segment. What we are watching today are changes for the worst, significant increases in certain populations. So one of the populations that where we are observing a significant increase in suicide rates in the United States, for example, is among middle-aged, rural, white, non-educated or less educated individuals. Basically, what we're talking is about is small-town America. There, yes, there is an increase in suicide. This increase is more significant among males. Follows a relatively well-known trend, and suicide is usually much higher among males than females. But this is a new trend. It's something we've been observing for the last decade, maybe a little more. And we need to look at it closely because this population is through the numbers, through epidemiological numbers, is sending us a message. It's not dealing well with things that are happening in its environment. So that is one of the things. There's Another important trend, which is the completely different age and ethnic group, it's suicide rates among young indigenous populations in the United States. In other countries, it's either better or in, for certain uh, tribal nations, it's much, much worse. It really is a, a scary trend. So we need to look at this group and try to understand what are the driving forces for suicide. So that brings me to uh, another reason why I wrote the book. There's a, a history of approaches about suicide. It started fairly well in the 19th century with Durkheim's book on suicide, identifying the first empirical study of suicide, identifying social factors there were more associated with suicide. So Durkheim tried to create, classify suicides according to types. And one of my goals uh, with this book was to give more visibility to the approaches that try to understand suicide as a social phenomenon, away from the major approach of suicide is a mental health issue and a symptom of mental illness. That's, um, that's a predominant perspective because it's the, the perspective taken from mainstream psychiatry. Medicine having almost monopoly over everything concerning health. This view that suicide is always or mostly a consequence of mental illness has been challenged for a long time and the scholars and um, the practitioners that have published well-supported empirical studies on the social factors, social driving forces of suicide, are not sufficiently known. And uh, one of my objectives with this this book is to highlight those uh, perspectives. And it's actually the only way uh, to make sense of spikes. In, in suicide in certain society. Like, for example, in the former socialist countries after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was significant, catastrophic increase in suicide among several of these countries because they were 
thrown into a chaotic economic situation for which the populations didn't have the resources. And uh, then two important factors identified since the 19th century by Durkheim expressed themselves. One of them is social isolation. Now, humans are social animals and they make sense of the world. Although you may think that you have your own view of about everything, about health, about marriage, about food. It's actually your interaction with your social group or the, the ideas that you're exposed to that result in this. So when you have a situation, a social disruption, either by something like the Soviet, um, the socialist country went through, like a major economic dis disruptions, or war, a civil war, or natural catastrophes that completely disrupt social life. If you can have uh, whole populations displaced and individuals finding themselves in complete isolation. So that favors the loss of meaningfulness for the individual. And meaningfulness is highly associated with hope. And hope is highly associated with suicide. The loss of hope is the one single mental state that mo is most highly associated with suicide. So that is why I wrote the book and also that is part of my main argument. That we need to look at suicide, we need to recover a perspective about suicide that integrates social and cultural factors. Otherwise we'll never understand suicide and we're going to just go into tautological thinking you know, suicide being a symptom of mental illness, therefore, if suicide happened, it was mental illness, and um, that is a that is a circular reasoning that doesn't help at all. So we need to recover the social approach to to suicide, and look into uh, incredibly well supported research on cultural factors, especially those about indigenous communities, about uh, the rise of suicide in the military, and, and, and there are particularly critical results. For example, what is known as the military suicide epidemic does not manifest the same way throughout all the armed forces. So why? We need to understand why, because if we don't understand what factors are fa are influencing the behavior of whole populations at, to the point that their mortality uh, and morbidity is altered. We cannot approach the problem in a preventive or, or post-ventive way. And what's the main argument of the book? So my argument for the book is the first, if we don't adopt an interdisciplinary, an inter and multidisciplinary approach to suicide, we're going to have only a small part of this picture and we're going to remain completely powerless to do anything about it. So we do need to bring in all the disciplines that are implicated in understanding suicide and they need to work together. We need to get out of the straitjacket, the main, mainstream psychiatry straitjacket of seeing suicide merely as a result of mental illness.
It is not. Suicide, even as mental illness, is a result of social pathologies, much more than an a individual genetically determined pathology. That is one of my arguments. The other argument is that any environment that contains positive factors, positive uh, uh, protective factors against suicide, will only be effectively protective if all the influences are controlled. For example, a school, going to school, is protective. But if this is a problematic school where bullying is not controlled, for example, the environment can be both protective and conducive to suicide. And how can it be both? You're going to ask, how can it be both? Because there are two conflicting influences. There's one, positive influences driving integration and regulation. So we also construct our values, the things we should not do and the things we should do, the things that are good, uh, the difference between good and evil. This is also socially constructed. In an environment when uh, disruptive or, or oppressive, violent factors are not controlled, then that environment is not necessarily protective, even though it is essentially an environment that should be protective. And that's my argument about lifting. The sports have been shown again and again to be protective against suicide. This is uh, there's research going back several decades. But in the strength sports, unfortunately, the few studies that have been conducted show that the net result is negative. It's conducive. It's more conducive than protective. So we need to understand why an environment where things are essentially protective against suicide are practiced, how does it end up being conducive to suicide? So my argument is that there are factors that influence the social groups engaged in the strength sports or the, or the strength gyms that are not very good, but they are controllable. They could be mitigated. My main argument, which I think can be used to benefit any community leader or any, any uh, individual that is uh, involved in, in prevention, because lifting is thoroughly analyzed, but the conclusions can be extrapolated to other environments. Now, in your opinion, can suicide be prevented? Suicide can be prevented. But the result of positive or negative uh, factors over suicide is a little bit like the weather. Weather forecasting is a very sophisticated activity. But we still don't know exactly, exactly where a tornado is going to hit. We know that there is a, a 92% chances of tornado incidents. We know that it will the region that is at, at risk, let's say it's northwestern Kansas, and we know that it could happen between Friday and Sunday. But we don't know exactly where the tornado is going to hit. Suicide is a little bit like that. We can predict with uh, some level of accuracy that in a certain population, we can expect to have, let's say, up to 
15 suicides in the next four months. But we don't know who is going to commit suicide or when. So in that sense, suicide prevention has to work in a macro level where we control for the social forces that are conducive to suicide. We try to mitigate them and we try to favor the factors that are protective against suicide. For example, we train community people, um, gatekeepers, to watch for red flags in their immediate environment. That is the most effective prevention measure, and it's at the micro level. So, for example, in a community, we assume that certain teachers are trained to be the gatekeepers in that community, and they will observe they can be a train to identify red flags, risk, and they have the privileged position to approach the people, individual people who are at risk and help them out of that situation. Being in the, in the suicidal process is a long-term thing. It can take years. It can be the person's whole life. But at a certain point, this individual will be approaching a more critical stage in their suicidal process. So gatekeepers can identify that the individual is at risk, even if the individual doesn't know it. And the gatekeeper can help the individual without being invasive, without forcing anything over the individual, and without stigmatizing the individual. And in the sense, we could say that a suicide has been prevented. We'll never know. Now, if this individual never committed to commit suicide, we'll never know if it, it was directly a result of the gatekeeper's intervention or not. But we know that gatekeepers in a community are important and then uh, they, have, they, they can have a very positive effect. You know, a lot of times we'll see on social media like Instagram, posts which talk about lifting as quote-unquote therapy. So let me ask you, do you think that lifting is protective against suicide? And what do you think could be improved? Lifting is possibly one of the most protective activities against suicide. First of all, considering a, a suicidal person who got very close to the final stages of a suicidal process, lifting is an activity that can promote a state of mind that helps an individual overcome the deep hopelessness and helplessness in which they find themselves for several reasons. But the most important of which is that we cannot think two things at the same time. So the intrusive thoughts, the negative intruding thoughts that are associated with taking action towards suicide it cannot happen at the same time as the person is organizing their uh, approach to a loaded bar to, let's say, perform a snatch or a squat. So during the period when the person is preparing to squat, they're not thinking. The intruding thought, the negative intruding suicidal thoughts are kept away. And that is extremely relieving and um, protective. For a small period of time, 
that individual can enjoy a state of calm. Sometimes it's the only time where the individual uh, is, is free from those uh, haunting negative thoughts. There are several other reasons that make um, lifting an incredibly effective preventive activity. I, I could list a few, like for example, the squat rack or the platform are symbolic borders, symbolic boundaries between the individual's intimate or personal space and the rest of the world. And usually suicidal individuals have been subjected to a lot of invasion of their boundaries. And uh, lifting can help them in a very simple way to take the first steps to restore their boundaries and in doing so engage in goal-oriented tasks. Goal-oriented tasks are intimately related to hope and I know it can sound kind of abstract but yes this very simple environment and activity can be the key to restoring hope. Lifting is at the same time something very simple and very complex. It is very simple and that simplicity is important for suicidal individuals because all they have to do is move the bar from point A to point B and back to point A. Sounds fairly simple and it is. Complexity is built over this simple algorithm. So that's something very positive. What is not positive doesn't have anything to do with lifting per se. It's, it's the environment. So there are certain lifting environments where intimidation, bullying, and pretty negative perspectives on competition and human interaction become widespread. And these factors can be disruptive over a vulnerable person with a, an already partially fragmented or uh, shattered self. So if you go through the list of motivational phrases that are shared uh, on the internet concerning lifting, they're mostly negative, very negative. They emphasize the feelings of failure and suicidal and vulnerable individuals are people who uh, are losing or have lost the battle against the feeling of failure. So they really don't need to be reminded about toughness, about how hard it is to, to be successful, and all those uh, very moralistic motivational phrases that I, I, I think are not motivational at all. They're just things that are repeated again and again and maintain, maintain uh, the status quo. So these are just examples of things that can be negative and need to be controlled if the community sees understands that lifting is going to be part of their program directed of mental health or social integration or whatever but if, if it's decided that lifting is to be protective then certain measure have to measures have to be taken intimidation has to be controlled violently if needed violence is not something necessarily bad a certain amount of violence is always present even in education when when you have uh, little kids in chaotic behavior in a class and you you give them an order to be quiet 
and go back to their seats. That's not necessarily something they want to do. But as an adult, you're using a controlled amount of violence, of power, to get the kids to do something that is good for them. So repressing bullying behavior, intimidatory behavior, is something that has to be done for the benefit of all. So, yeah, the short answer is lifting is not the way, the way it is now and considering the net result has not been protected in suicide, but it can be. And I think that's what I, I really wanted to say with this book. I think, and other people think so too, that I'm in a, in a, in a particularly favorable position to write what I wrote because I have an interdisciplinary background that goes from bio, evolutionary biology and chemistry up to um, science and technology policy. So I'm trained in several different fields. Um, so I'm at the right place academically to talk about interdisciplinarity and how deadly it can be to ignore the need for interdisciplinary work. I am also a lifter, so I, I know um, in, in, um, in a, in a first-hand experience basis what um, lifting is, and um, I know the, the different kinds of environment where it can happen. Um, third, and, and that's not something that is in the book at all, there's just a phrase that um, tells the leader about it, um, I am also a suicide survivor, so um, I'm not going to, it's not something that is elaborated in the book, but it is important that um, those with the direct experience, with the, what we call lived experience, are heard. Um, actually, the knowledge that we bring to the table by, through our lived experience, is uh, is essential. It's critical to build policies, and by um, disqualifying mental health patients and people with um, suicide lived experience, um, by disqualifying us, what mainstream psychiatry is doing is perpetuating their negative effect on mental health, which they inherited from the asylum days. So uh, I hope that everyone who reads the book can take something out of it. That's all we have for today, guys. I just want to thank Dr. Maria Cotino for her time and wisdom. Music by Robert Slump. For Scars and Iron, this is Joe, signing off.